Good morning, Professor Kane. My name is Kavya Navarthi. I'm a member of the class of 2025 at Dartmouth and a public program student assistant at the Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and Social Sciences. Uh, it's my honor to welcome you to Dartmouth and the Rockefeller Center um, and to have you join our podcast, uh, Rocky Talk. Before we start, I'm just going to uh, read a bio for for our listeners. So John B. Kane is an assistant professor at New York University's Center for Global Affairs. He has a PhD from the Department of Political Science at Stony Brook University and primarily researches political psychology and behavior, partisanship, and public opinion and behavior. Professor Kane is published in the American Journal of Political Science, the British Journal of Political Science, Political Research Quarterly, and Public Opinion Quarterly. He teaches courses on political ideology, statistics and data analysis, and human rights. Uh, again, it's my pleasure to welcome you to Dartmouth today, Professor Kane. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to start by asking about the topic of your lecture today, which is, do voters actually care about fed federal budget deficits, how partisan bias shapes the importance of issues? Um, so much of your research has focused on public opinion of, um, you know, our financial and economic institutions like the IRS and, um, you know, the bureaucracy and its spending. Um, so just to kind of start broadly, um, how important are budget deficits in today's politics? Well, there's, I guess there's how important they are in reality, and then there's how important they are in politics, which, as you probably know, doesn't always involve reality. Um, so they, you know, a, as an economic issue, I'm not an economist, um, you know, but there there is certainly um, a reasonable case to be made that there's an upper limit to how high, um, you know, the national debt could go, how, how large deficits can be. Um, you know, once the once deficits are of a certain size, the U.S. is paying interest on on that debt, and so that interest occupies a share of the the budget as well. And we don't want that interest to to get very large either. And so there, there's a reasonable case to be made. Um, in the realm of politics, though, uh, we see that it, it can be quite important. Very very often during campaigns and uh, during uh, right after an election, such as now, right, we can see some some battling between between the parties over deficits, and it can become a focal point. Uh, I would say certainly any time like uh, a debt ceiling comes into play, right, that becomes all we can kind of focus on for a little while. Um, uh, but also uh, any time you know uh, people are hoping for substantial pieces of legislation, for example, and healthcare or the environment, very costly major changes to public policy, right, will often involve, you know, potentially a lot of new spending and the concern becomes, can the U.S. afford it, right? And so anytime you're talking about meaningful legislation that would actually impact people's lives, the question of what the U.S. can be, can actually afford comes into play. And so in that case, deficits again become kind of a, a focal point. We talk about the Congressional Budget Office and their forecast for how a piece of legislation might impact uh, the deficit or, or debt, you know, five or 10 years out or something. So it could become a very important ish issue at certain points in time, I would say, um, even if it's not something that's always on people's minds. Yeah. Um, so I think you sort of answered this, but, um, you know, in advance of your coming to Dartmouth today, I talked to um, a lot of students and, and professors on the title of your lecture, uh, which again is, you know, do voters actually care about federal budget deficits? 
And a lot of people I talked to, you know, to put it bluntly, heard that question and said, no, you know, not at all. Voters don't care. Um, so, you know, as someone who studies the role of budget deficits in, you know, political outcomes, um, you know, what is your pitch as to why budget deficits are relevant and, and impactful in today's politics? Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, again, on that point, um, concerns about budget deficits certainly come into play when any new legislation is being offered. So I would say that, you know, someone is wondering about implementing some some major change to the healthcare system or to, uh, you know, mitigate the effects of climate change. If a politician is making the point that like, hey, this policy, you know, it's a decent idea, but uh, we simply can't afford it. Right? If that persuades even a tiny slice of the population, um, then that could have meaningful consequences for whether that um, legislation actually gets passed. So again, I think at certain points in time, it can become a very important consideration that people have. Um, and I do, I do think though, uh, that it's a tricky question of do people actually care? Um, I think that there is a, a very cheap talk way of caring, that it's easy to kind of report in a survey or something that, that you do care that it is an important issue. And we typically see that in, in surveys, um, that, uh, you know, a substantial share of people will say that that this is this is a major issue and something that should be addressed. Um, but as you'll kind of see in the in my talk, a big part of it that's not talked about as much is that there's a huge partisan component to it, and a lot of it has to do. The importance of deficits has a lot to do with which party is occupying the presidency and sort of which party someone belongs to. Yeah, and you factor that in. Um, you start seeing a lot of a lot of movement around uh, this issue. But again, at certain points in time, I think it can really factor in. So, you know, during a budget standoff and uh, a fight over the debt ceiling or something, you know, parties are concerned about it, whose side is the public on. And so it matters, um, you know, what people are thinking about deficits and how much they're uh, willing to risk, you know, defaulting on U.S. debt or something. Um, in an effort to uh, reduce deficits. Right. And um, so you just mentioned sort of the partisan component of this. And I want to get into, um, you know, what seems to be, you know, a really important uh, piece of your work, which is that paper you had with um, Ian Anson, where you essentially found that it depends uh, which party is in power in terms of, uh, you know, the, the way that voters lean on this issue. Um, so, you know, in the description of, of your talk today, um, this phrase, you know, partisan bias comes up a lot. Um, can you sort of clarify for um, our listeners what you mean by partisan bias in in, the, in this context? Yeah, so a lot of my training in political science is uh, in political psychology in particular, and a, a very big concept in social psychology, political psychology now is this idea of partisan identity. And so uh, you know, traditional political scientists would think of it as like you're a Democrat or you're a Republican if, you know, that's who you tend to vote for. That's certainly part of it. Um, but from an identity perspective, it goes much deeper than that. Um, and that from an identity perspective, just like in sports or in religion, when something bad, it, when something is making your team look bad or your, you know, preferred religious denomination look bad, um, 
you have a strong motivation to do something about it. So, you know, classic literature on cognitive dissonance, right? Here's this thing that you like, but there's this stuff that's making this thing you like look bad. And you feel an impulse to do something about that, to fix it in some way. And so the bias comes in because, um, you know, it's not just your, your party. It's something you take very personally. It's something you personally identify with. If your party's losing, you are losing. So you need, you feel this need to do something to maintain support for your party um, or to at least just make the other party look really bad. That's the fundamental part of bias is that it is, it changes how people think about political issues, changes their attitudes, changes their opinions in a way um, to make them fit with a party so that they can kind of maintain a positive image of their own party um, or maintain a negative image of the other party. And that's sort of at the root of what's important, at least to me, about bias. And again, it makes a lot of sense when you study it from an identity perspective mm -hmm. um, as opposed to a traditional, like, you know, this is just who you vote for and you sort of evaluate the parties on the merits rather than something deeper about like a psychological attachment to parties. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of the trends on, you know, voter opinions on this issue of the national deficit, how have those trends, um, you know, either confirmed or rejected your uh, ideas about partisan bias and the, the psychological phenomenon you're just describing? Yeah. So, I mean, as I'll kind of present tonight, some, some of the biggest swings, the easiest things that you can see are how Democrats or Republicans feel about the deficit um, when we change from one party in the presidency to the other. Um, and that's kind of the where you can see it's sort of plain as day that there are some big swings in, in deficits, uh, in, in concern about deficits uh, when parties change. And one could imagine if you were like an alien from outer space and you were, um, you know, thinking about it, you could say, okay, as the deficit gets worse, everyone, regardless of party, right, should become more concerned about doing something about the deficit and the national debt, which is which is going up and has increased quite a bit um, since COVID. Uh, but that's just not how it goes. Uh, it goes up for people, um, you know, at, as it goes up, um, people in the party out of power become more concerned about it or express that they're more concerned. People that are in the party in power um, express less concern mm -hmm. and, and just sort of uh, start to feel like it's not a very big deal. One, one of my favorite quotes of all time, during the Bush, uh, George W. Bush administration in the 2000s, uh, there were large tax cuts, right, which reduced revenues, and there was also quite a bit more spending with the war on terror. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, we saw very, very large deficits during that time. And again, it's a Republican administration, uh, which um, ostensibly cares a lot about fiscal conservatism, right? Um, but during that time, Vice President Dick Cheney famously said, deficits don't matter. Mm -hmm. And like that is at the heart of, of sort of my argument here, which is that when you were the party in power, because it's such a hard issue to fix, mm -hmm. um, what will tend to happen is just that partisans will trivialize the issue, downgrade the importance of the issue, uh, to make it look not so bad if it is making their party look bad. And they'll elevate the importance of the issue as a means of making the other party look bad. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm curious, are there any issues that you feel contradict that that trend of partisan bias and kind of sticking with party affiliation over your actual, whatever your actual like view may be? So you mean any issues where where partisans wouldn't move in that predictable right. kind of direction? Exactly. Um, it's it's hard. I think there are a certain class of issues where. Um, where it may be hard, there is some evidence that partisans do this, but on issues where people can have uh, very strong differences of opinion, for example, like, um, you know, uh, a woman's right to attend an abortion or something like that, where now, um, you know, pe you will tend to see partisans sticking to their position. I don't think that you would necessarily see very big swings in you know stances on issues depending on whether there's a democrat in office and what's going on in the context um i, I don't think people would necessarily switch all all that much on on that this happens for a particular class of issues that are political sometimes political scientists sometimes called valence issues where it's just like this is just a a bad thing like just gas prices inflation deficits crime no one likes this and the more there is of it the worse it makes the party in power look on that class of issues is really where like our arguments applies mm -hmm. um where this is just something that makes if you're the party in power this just makes your party look bad um and if you're the party out of power if you emphasize this thing it makes the party in power look bad which uh in a two-party system thereby helps make your party look relatively better. Right. So yeah, so I think it does depend on sort of the class of issues and, and this one, um, our argument really here is applying to these kind of valence issues. Mm -hmm. So you just touched on the two-party system, which is, you know, a characteristic part of um, the American political system. Do you find that um, this trend of partisan bias um, carries through to you know any other the, the political systems of any other countries or is this a distinctly american phenomenon yeah uh so it's a topic that i'm 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 interested i i have to admit that i'm not nearly as well versed in the literature as i should be but uh from talking with some people about this more recently part of the issue in in other countries with uh, that are multi-party systems is that you you have things like coalitions between different parties right there's no sort of majority party and so you have um people working to together um and that i think can help to kind of tamp down this um identity component a little bit you know if you um, you might be a strong member of your party, but if you're able to form an alliance kind of with another party, um, it, I think it can help mute that sort of Manichaean, black-white, good-evil way of looking at politics. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that it's um, nearly, nearly as intense, and certainly some research has shown this too, it's just the, the kind of level of, polarization, the level of partisan bias in the U.S. is a little bit unique, and uh, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that it has, it has quite a bit to do with uh, the zero-sum nature of, of politics. What's If something hurts Republicans, 
at least the interpretation is, well, then it helps Democrats. Mm -hmm. If something hurts Democrats, that's good for Republicans. Mm -hmm. uh, not saying I agree that that's the way it should be, but the two-party system kind of constantly reinforces that zero-sum way of looking at politics. Right. Um, so another thing is, you know, anecdotally, and I think a lot of us can relate to this, is when we're talking politics with people, um, you know, a lot of times it comes down to people agreeing that, oh, at the end of the day, I think most people are actually in the center and most people um, kind of want the same things, right? Um, does does your findings, which, you know, you kind of do, obviously, uh, with a lot of data, with, with statistics, um, would you say that contradicts this idea that I think a lot of Americans have that, you know, people are actually all in the center and want the same thing? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, no, I, I actually think, uh, I think that you, that both can be true at the same time. So, uh, a very in, important book that came out in the past couple years as the other divide, uh, by, uh, Yana Krupnikov and, and John Ryan, uh, who were formerly at the same place where I did my PhD. And they, they make the point that, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on polarization mm -hmm. as there should be. And there are a lot of consequences um of polarization that we should care about um certainly on on political matters certainly on how people vote right certainly on major events like january 6th or something right that doesn't happen in a depolarized world um uh and uh and, and also you know family strife uh you know family is coming apart because of politics like this stuff happens and it's a major divide, that kind of Republican-Democrat divide. Mm -hmm. But there's another divide, which is people who care about politics and people who don't. Mm -hmm. And I think to your point, um, most people don't necessarily walk around all day thinking about politics. That remains a kind of minority of the U.S. population, which has always been true. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just a very relatively small share of the public who wants to spend you know, their, their free time uh, thinking about this stuff, which is oftentimes very complex, uh, oftentimes, you know, pretty, pretty depressing. Uh, so there's really not necessarily too many people who want to do that. So I don't know if I would go so far as to say that most people are in the center. I think there are a lot of, a sizable share of the public uh, that, that identifies as kind of like ideologically moderate and likes that idea of not calling themselves the label uh, a Democrat or Republican. Um, but at the end of the day, I think when, when you drill down a little bit, you'll still find that people do do tend to hold positions, maybe not all that strongly, but do tend to hold positions that kind of put them closer to one camp uh, than the other. So, you know, when we measure partisanship, for example, maybe, maybe a third to 40% of people will call themselves an independent. So again, it's not most, I, I think most of the public puts themselves um, toward a, a partisan camp, right? Um, but when you push people a little bit, they'll usually admit to generally leaning toward one party or the other. And so when you kind of get rid of, you know, take those people into account, you're left with maybe 10 or 15% of the population that is staunchly, you know, independent, that staunchly just kind of forswears politics and the, really has no political attitudes whatsoever. So I think 
that that tends to be a tiny, tiny share, but it's still the case that most of the public doesn't necessarily love dealing with this stuff. Um, and so that opens up the door for how kind of partisan bias can seep in. And even with elections, you know, 60% of people voting or so in elections, you could regard that as high or low, but I mean, it's still a major part of our, our country and culture. So enough people are involved in it that it still makes sense to study this polarization stuff. Cool. Well, um, that's all I have for now. I'm looking forward to your lecture this evening. Um, again, this is Professor John B. Kane from New York University. Uh, it, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today on Rocky Talk. Thank you for having me. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.